Hey everyone, I'm your host Tom Shaughnessy and welcome back to Chain Reaction, a research-driven podcast that's a part of Delphi Digital. If you're not on Delphi's research portal, you're missing out on the critical analysis read by the top minds in the crypto space, so be sure to check it out. One quick housekeeping item, nothing said on this podcast is a solicitation to buy or sell any security or token or to make any financial decisions. I may personally hold tokens mentioned on the podcast and you can view our show notes below for our complete disclosures. With that, let's jump into the episode. Before we jump in, we want to thank the Cosmos community for their sponsorship in making this episode possible. There are several projects building inter-blockchain communication protocols, but there's one that's currently built. Cosmos.network is on a mission to link every blockchain. Well-known projects like Terra, Band, Kava, and Secret use Cosmos and the Cosmos Hub to connect to every other chain in their network. The Cosmos Hub is completed and launched, and you could visit Cosmos.network today to check it out. The Cosmos Hub brings us that much closer to Web 3.0 and we thank the Cosmos community for sponsoring the Delphi podcast. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the podcast. I'm Tom Shaughnessy, your host, and I'm a GP at Delphi Ventures. Today, I'm thrilled to have on Sam, who's the founder of Arweave, which is a very interesting storage play we've been following for a long time. I'm also joined by Khan, who's our analyst here at Delphi, who's done a ton of work on Arweave. So, uh, Sam, why don't we start with you? Give, uh, give a brief instruction on yourself, and we'll go from there. Sure. Uh, thanks for having me on. I'm pretty excited to speak to you guys in this audience. We hear really great things through our network, so uh, it's exciting. Um, yeah. Okay. So I'm Sam. I was, I guess you could call me like the inventor of the Arweave network, um, and still kind of its chief architect as much as it has one nowadays. Um, we started the project around four years ago when I was doing a PhD in distributed operating system design, and since then, yeah, for about a year, we built out the base version of the the protocol. And we launched it on the 69th anniversary of the release of 1984, which I guess is maybe something we'll get into later or why that's relevant to us. And since then, we've just been building out the community around it for the last three years and some work on the protocol. But at this point, it's starting to mature and it doesn't really need very much uh, uh, maintenance or changes. Yeah, that's kind of where we are. So I'm not sure how to proceed from that. Yeah, great to hear. Actually, the, the first time I met the uh, project, I, I mean, uh, I remember uh, thinking myself, what such a cool project, you know, to permanently store data. So, so it's like, um, uh, so I wonder actually, how, how did you come up with this idea in the first place? Like, it's, it's a really interesting idea to have to carry information to further generations. Yeah, well, um, so bringing it back to 1984, we were really inspired by the idea of closing the memory hole, as Orwell described it in that book. You see, 1984, for those that haven't read it, is a sort of vision of this dystopian future that was written in 1948, largely based on the experiences of people in the Soviet Union, um, small amount in China at that time. But, you know, it's what, 70 years old now, and it's startlingly realistic of the modern world we live in, as well as this sort of dystopian world that is emerging in particularly like modern day China, Turkey, and some other states that have really taken to what you might call digital authoritarianism. So we we were looking at um, some of the trends in the world, and we were seeing that you could say something like the, the pace of history was picking up. So the, the I think it was Lenin that 
that said something like, there are decades in which nothing happens and there are decades in which everything happens. And it seems very much like we're heading into one of those periods right now where everything is happening. And there's this other sort of what you say, dynamic that occurs in, in authoritarian regimes where control over information and control over access to the past is a is a prize, you could say, for the regime, which they use to control the way that people think about the future, or rather think about the present, and then subsequently how they act in the future. And Orwell put this nicely, that the person that controls the present controls the past, the person that controls the past controls the future. I love that quote. So, you're right, right. <laughs> yeah. It perfectly epitomizes the, the problem that we're trying to solve. And so what we thought we could do is basically make it so that there was group ownership across the whole world, democratic ownership of records of the past. And that is closing the memory hole as it's described in the book. Um, and that's sort of why we got into all of this in the first place. We do that by essentially scaling up a blockchain from the size where, uh, you know, in Ethereum and Bitcoin right now, we argue over bytes, single bytes that we add to the ledger because each one costs so much. Yes, taking it from that sort of data storage sizes to like essentially arbitrary quantities inside a single transaction. And then at the same time, pairing that with an economically sustainable mechanism for perpetuating that data. This works, broadly speaking, like an endowment. You put in uh, yeah, enough fees to cover 200 years worth of storage up front. And then over time, the cost of storage declines. You get interest in the form of storage purchasing power. And you use that storage purchasing power without breaking into the principal that first 200 years over time as necessary. And essentially what happens is you end up with more storage purchasing power at the end of each given year than you had at the beginning. And that way we can make uh, you know, information permanence truly sustainable. Yeah, thank you for laying out with us. Go ahead, Tom. Oh yeah, sorry, no. I, I want Kent to get into the technicals with you, but just one follow-up question there. I mean, yeah. the 1984 example is incredible. And I mean, the ability to store data for the world in a history that doesn't change is obviously massive, right? So that people have a real view of history as we, we go down the line. Did you start this under that altruistic vision? Or did you also start our Reef to store, say, storage for just traditional web apps or potentially new apps that we just use, you know, maybe a step below, you know, kind of protecting the world's history? Uh, no, I would actually say we were more incentivized around protecting the world's history than the commercial aspects, which really just developed along with us. Like, It started with this question of, okay, how do we archive newspaper articles? Um, in fact, the, the reason that there are 66 million Arweave tokens in total was we did some sort of back of the napkin math. You know, it's, it's always difficult choosing your token supply quantities. Like, It's basically arbitrary, right? But we were trying to make it so that at some reasonable valuation, archiving the New York Times homepage would cost you one Arweave token. Yeah, so that was really like the, the initial, what do you say, initializing uh, force for the whole thing. And then over time, of course, we realized, well, if you've got a, an immutable archive of newspaper articles, then actually you've got an immutable archive of everything. And that's much, much more powerful. And very shortly after that, we realized, okay, well, if you can store web pages in this thing, you know, that are archived, why can't you store primary sources web pages? And now you've got yourself a web. And if you build on top of that, just one more layer and say, okay, how about we can tag all of that data as well, which obviously if this thing is an archive, the tagging and metadata associated with the information is, is really valuable too. So that's a sort of natural continuation of the idea. Yeah, if we have that, then why don't we um, then why don't we make it queryable? And once you have querying of the data inside the system, well all of a sudden you can build applications on top of it, like truly decentralized 
permanent web applications. And that's super powerful, it turns out. That's yeah, essentially would... what we call the perma web nowadays. Please go on. Perfect, perfect. Uh, good to hear. So so that brings uh, us to a good point because I, I, I wanted to ask you about it. When you have a permanent decentralized network, uh, it has some emergent properties, right? It has a data provenance, data integrity, availability, mm-hmm. proof of existence, and uh, many more that I'm missing right now, probably. So I'm interested, like, what use cases are there? Obviously, archiving is is the majority one, but uh, I, I I I want to understand, like, are there any very innovative uh, use cases that you're particularly excited uh, today, or maybe it can be built in so tomorrow? many? Yeah. Uh, for what it's worth, I, I think yeah, the idea of differentiation between the web and an archive has become blurry. Like the web is just where we put our knowledge, and it just makes sense that all of that knowledge persists forever. Like really, you don't want to put knowledge out into the world and, and then have it like disappear. That's not the way that people ideally want things to work. Generally, if you've published it in public, you want it to be around. Full stop. Um, so, so I don't think that the the use case is really just archiving per se. It's really just publishing of information that you want to make sure it goes as far and wide as you can. Um, that is essentially a web. I think that is what we're trying to disrupt largely. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's obvious stuff there, like, yeah, um, storing large data sets that, that should be public. For example, scientific journal articles. It'd be great to see a system built on top of Arweave um, that makes sure that science is perpetuated for excessively long periods of time. Like, There's really no need that we'd ever want to forget that. But slightly weirder stuff, I would say, if you're thinking about it from the point of view of, a, of an archive, is things like applications themselves. But from the point of view of the user, this is extremely powerful because you can essentially build web applications on top of Arweave that answer to no one. So they run under the same principles as code is law on Ethereum, except their entire web apps, like things the size of and complexity of YouTube or Facebook can be built on top of the system today without any modification. Like it's really that scalable and it just works. Um, and, and those applications have really, really interesting properties. Like they, uh, okay, one that's I think critical is that they allow users to, or developers first to define how the content is gonna be moderated on top of the system through the code. And one of the ways they can do that is they can delegate it to a community. So something like decent.land, for example, is a, is a perma web application where each community, which is broadly speaking a subreddit, uh, gets to vote on yeah the content moderation in their uh, part of the internet, part of cyberspace, which is something that you just fundamentally can't do in the Web2 world. Because you know in the perma web, the community is the highest, what would you say, the highest authority they have all of the power. But in the Web2 world, there will always have to be a company sitting on top of them that actually decides what's said. So they can like moderate somewhat, but the company is going to moderate on top of that. Um, yeah, it's just a completely different power dynamic. And that's just one of the things. Another is, for example, if you have permanent web applications, you as a consumer can be sure that they're never going to decline in quality, which at, at like initial glance doesn't look that important. But I would actually argue that most of the problems with the Web2 world come down to this. So like the normal flow for getting a Web2 application adopted, it goes like this, right? So you build something interesting on a weekend. You get it some adoption. Well, you just put it out into the world and suddenly people like it. And it's like, wow, that's actually a cool thing. 
And now suddenly you've got yourself like significant uh, server costs associated with it. So, oh dear, now we need funding of some kind. You can't just give it away for free. Okay, fine. So you raise VC uh, capital. Okay, cool. But now there's people that are bought into extracting value later by putting capital up front. So you're sort of bankrolling the adoption process. And at some point later, after you've dominated the market, you've got to turn on the tap and make some money somehow. And this is fine. This is like a normal business model. But the problem is that from the user's perspective, they can sign up to a service, which eventually at some point is going to pivot to using them to or extracting value from them in a way that it wasn't previously. And particularly in the Web2 world, we see that uh, a lot of this comes down to, yeah, gaining a moat around those users. So making it so that they can't leave after they've signed up. And now value is being extracted from them, which is, from the user's perspective, highly suboptimal. Whereas a perma-web application, you, that just that can't happen to you. The code is permanent. It's always going to be available like this. The developer can release a new version that is better if they want, but they can't make it worse. Now the power relationship between developer and consumer is completely, completely different. Yeah, I, I feel you. I understand. Like sometimes it annoys me a lot when uh, when I have some app and that forces me to uh, to upgrade to the new newer version. Uh, I, I don't like it. So yeah, it's it's a it's a good point. So uh, you've you mentioned the uh, endowment and then the payment yeah. structure. So that's that I find obviously very interesting. You pay once to store forever, <laughs> and then how how does the network actually uh, uh, ensures that for for people who don't know, who are not familiar, could you explain it uh, to us? Yeah, please? absolutely. So it, it, it sounds impossible up front. I can understand. <laughs> yeah, if I were to look at it from the outside, if I knew nothing about it, I'd be like, how on earth does that work? But actually, in, in practice, it's, it's really quite simple. You put aside 200 years worth of data storage costs at the beginning, which sounds expensive, but it's actually 0.4 cents per megabyte, something like that. So for something like storing a web application or even storing your posts, blog posts, tweets, whatever, it's actually quite cheap. This is just the nature of storage being as cheap as it is today relative to the types of data that we want to store. Okay, cool. So we've got that. And, and you can imagine base version, then it should just release those tokens over time for the next 200 years, and that's 200 years worth of storage covered, right? But actually, over time, the cost of storage declines at a fairly predictable rate. Over the last 50 years, it's been about 330.5% on average per year, but the network assumes a declining rate of 0.5% per year. And if you factor into um, the yeah your calculations of like how much storage you can buy uh, with your 200 years worth, actually over time in, in practice, yeah, you find that as long as it stays above that 0.5% rate, you just never run out of tokens to pay for it. It's kind of like the cost is exponentially decaying and you can sum the area under that curve to give you a finite cost for an indefinite period of storage. Obvious questions there are like, yeah, okay. So in the past, it declined at this rate, but how do you know it's going to do that in the future? Uh, so we looked at this in, in a lot of detail and we, we don't like to make predictions about individual technologies because that kind of misses the point. It's not really clear when they'll come about and so on. Instead, we choose, chose to look at the theoretical data density maximums and the data density maximums that we've actually reached in the lab, so in practice already. And we can see that where we are right now is somewhere like 1 times 10 to the power 12 uh, bits, or maybe 13 bits per cubic uh, centimeter of data density. And the uh, in the lab, we've already reached 1 times 10 to the power, I think it's 24 or 25. And in um, 
know, the, the theoretical maximum, so like Moore's law limit, except on the storage side, is around 1 times 10 to the power of 63. So there's an enormous amount of room uh, for growth on just the data density side. But of course, there's another component to what we call the gigabyte hour cost. So the cost of storing a gigabyte for an hour, which is what drives all of the economics here. And that's data reliability. And we use magnetic uh, hard drives at the moment, typically. So, so there's an electron basically representing the state of a bit or a set of electrons representing the state of a bit somewhere in the system. And that's That makes sense because these uh, materials are read-write, right? So you want to write many times and, and you don't want to like physically change the state of the atoms. So what you want to do instead is, yeah, what you want to do instead is have it so that you can do that with a magnet, basically. It makes a lot of sense in this, in this um, what would you say, paradigm that we currently have. But for permanent storage, it doesn't make any sense at all. Uh, actually, for permanent storage, you should really be like, you know, etching this stuff into the chemical structure of the drive medium because it's write once, read many, right? And so on that component, the data reliability component, there's even higher um, amounts of, uh, what would you say, efficiencies to be made. Essentially, it's, it's actually much, much harder to predict the end game of where that goes to. But just to take it back to the one where we can, so one of the, the factors where we can uh, sort of predict this, we think that at the 30.5% rate, it will take 430 years approximately to reach that terminal uh, data density limit. And at that point, you know, we'd probably just start building bigger hard drives. It's hardly like hard drive size is something we really care about. Yeah, yeah. so that's no, all about uh, the endowment structure. No, it's it's magical from the user perspective, right? I mean, pay once, store forever, and you're basically doing a DCF of what storage prices are going to cost, and you're arbing that, and it's magical. Um, I guess one question on that point is, it just plays into your native token. I mean, you guys have your own mm -hmm. token. So what happens to the price of storage when the price of your token goes way up? I guess, how do you prevent oh, yeah, that's know, a wild one. swings in storage prices? <laughs> Right. So we have a, a heuristic-based fiat price stabilization mechanism that basically says, okay, so at time zero, and we, we hard code this into the protocol, at time zero, the price of RWEV is this many. The number of tokens being released per block is this many. And the amount of work going into the block production is this much. Take these three factors. And then at another time, so time one, we call it, we know there's this much work going into the creation of a block. And there's this many tokens being released. And because the miners are economically rational actors, we can infer then the price of the token. And that's because essentially what the miners do, or what these networks do really, is they attract more miners to come and put their, put their work, whatever it happens to be. In this case, it's uh, some CPU work, but, but ideally mostly um, hard drive work. Yes, in mining the network until the profit margin is low enough that it's not actually that interesting for someone else to come along and join the network and continue mining it. And so you always have this effect where the miners are sort of collectively exerting slightly less than the amount of value that is emitted in the blocks in the network. So in the, at the moment in Arweave, we emit about $150 worth of value per block. Uh, and the miners, I think, are putting in probably like $130, something like that collectively um, per block into the work. So, so because this is predictable, we can make a heuristic-based system that estimates the price of Arweave tokens in fiat form, or at least in some generic value units. It's actually kind of elegant because it doesn't 
it's not really truly fiat. It's not going to uh, have a problem if the US dollar has a problem, for example. Um, yeah, in some generic value value unit, it's kind of keeping track of it and then stabilizing the price that way. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, that yeah, makes no, perfect sense. So, 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 like instead of using oracles, maybe to to like have an ex exact figure, then then you use a hash rate or network difficulty as a proxy, good enough proxy for the uh, for what's going on in the fiat world, basically. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. It's much perfect. more robust, we think. Perfect. So you're doing a a, a uh, you're pioneering in this industry, right? So obviously there are some challenges, etc. Uh, and new problems you're tackling uh, that nobody nobody else tackled before. So that requires uh, some uh, adaptivity. And I know that uh, you recently switched uh, to a uh, uh, new uh, consensus mechanism, uh, um, mechanism that is uh, yeah. spor Spora. So right. how how do you see effects of it? Uh, what, what have you witnessed since you changed the consensus mechanism? What was the intention there? Well, the intention was just to increase the number of data replicates, and that has certainly happened. I think as of today, there's probably like 1,200 or 1,300 replicas of the data all across the world, which is actually pretty significant. It's, I, I, it's hard to get proper numbers on this. I've tried, mm -hmm. and so I can't be sure, but I think it's probably the most replicated data set in the world at this point, which is pretty cool. Um, there's a lot of room to grow as more miners come online. One of the early effects we saw <laughs> was hilariously profitable mining for the first few days because, you know, our weave token prices, whatever, and um, it's emitting like $150 of value. But when we swapped the mining process, most of the pools just went offline. And so if you're a small miner, now suddenly you're making like, you know, we had like 150 miners at the beginning. Yeah, with $150 of value being emitted per block. And none of those were big professional miners. So that's just like a dollar per block for everyone that was taking part. It was pretty crazy. Longer term, it, it, we're just seeing this pattern towards larger numbers of replications of the data set, which is exactly what we wanted. So really glad to see that. Um, Sam, and just, I guess in line with Spora, um, I, you know, it's pretty technical. We're gonna link to it in the show mm -hmm. notes, of course, but like one of the goals with that was to kind of reduce um, remote storage. And, mm -hmm. you know, one of my concerns with, with decentralized storage is that, you know, a lot of these players are just kind of reselling AWS or Google and Microsoft. We're kind of back at stage one, right? How does Arweave kind of tackle that so that we kind of, you know, move away from that, you know, the Web2 paradigm there? Yeah, that's an interesting question. I, I don't see it so much like that. Like, I don't care about competing with AWS on temporary storage costs. And so if people want to arbitrage on AWS storage costs, in the period in which they are mining, then so be it, that, that's fine by me. They're not gonna all do that because there's more efficient and effective ways. And so they use lots of different providers and lots of them run their own rigs and all sorts of stuff. We see Arweave as, as addressing something fundamentally different. It's just permanent information storage for the first time, full stop. It's like a zero to one change in the same way that Bitcoin was a zero to one change in digital scarcity. Ethereum was a zero to one change in smart contracts. Arweave is not trying to just decentralize an existing file storage paradigm that already basically largely almost everyone works. Instead, we're trying to do something completely, completely new. And so the way the, the network is made up right now, there are replicas of it, uh, the data set across basically every major cloud provider, uh, many of the minor ones, and in lots of people's homes. And that's great. Like that's perfect. That that fulfills what the uh what would you say, what the the network needs to do in the short term in order to 
uh, fulfill its mission in the long term, right? At any point in time, there need to be lots of replicas of it everywhere in the world. No, that, that makes a lot of sense. And I mean, just to follow up to close the loop for me there, like, I guess, how do you envision Arweave like 25, 50 years down the road? Like, does it matter to you whether, you know, the state of your chain is actually, you know, basically 100% stored in everybody's homes? Or do you care if it's 100% on the cloud providers? I, I guess I, we always go back and forth on this vision because everybody wants to see the move off cloud providers. I really don't see the need to, but, you know, I'd love right. to get your answer there. Uh, yeah, I, I say 100% of anything is probably not what we want. <laughs> right? <laughs> that's fair. So like yeah. um, 100% cloud providers, that's not a good situation. 100% homes is probably okay. But um, yeah, I would rather there were some super fast, high reliability uh, backups of the network. That that would be better. Like a mixture. Really, the, the network is to some extent a virus that just wants to make replicas of the data set across as many hard drives as possible. And this plays out in the fact that like, when people turn off their Arweave of miners, they never delete the data. We've actually spoken to quite a few miners that, you know, there's this natural churn, so they weren't quite as efficient as other miners, so they weren't being profitable when some were. They, they, they leave the network for a while. Um, we speak to them, and you know, I always ask the question, hey, did you delete the data? No one ever thinks about this. They're like, no, no, I just left it there. And so now the network has made another copy of that data set. Yeah, and so it kind of spreads as a virus across all these old hard drives all over the world, which is awesome because the only thing we care about is just replicating that data set as far and as wide as possible. And the elegant thing is, if there's a piece of data that is like, there's very few replicas left for some reason, right? And it's on um, you know, some hard drives that are offline. Well, now actually the incentive for someone to bring it back online or to sell that copy to someone else that's part of the network is higher because the data is rarer. And so there's this sort of auto-leveling effect for um, data replication as well, which is pretty, I don't want to say elegant because I designed the system, but I'm pretty happy <laughs> with it. <laughs> and and like, one, last, nice. one last question there, and, and I'll throw it back over to, to Ken to, to dive in as well. But, you know, and I hate to lob this question because it's like, you know, it's like the extreme, right? But right. let's say like World War III happened and, you know, some country launches missiles at all the AWS availability zones, right? And yeah. like, let's be honest, everyone kind of knows where they are and, and it wouldn't be too hard. <laughs> like, right, for sure. would we survive? Mm -hmm. Easily. Yeah, no problem at all. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, that's not a concern. What I'd be more concerned of is actually it's like a super, super bad pandemic, like, you know, just an atrociously bad pandemic. Um, you have this problem that like the lines of the internet need to be maintained by humans that have to turn up for work. Now that is a trickier problem than nuclear war where like the whole thing is replicated everywhere. So, you know, unless literally the whole surface of the world is um, destroyed, then then Sam, that we are, we are ending your example because I cannot deal with another pandemic anytime soon. <laughs> I'm sorry. Okay, fair <laughs> enough. <laughs> I'm well, kidding. It's, it's, a, it's a good yeah. thought experiment. Yeah, well, I mean, it was a thought experiment until it was very real. And the beginning of this pandemic, you know, we obviously didn't know how much truth there was to the information coming out of China right at the beginning. So it wasn't clear what the, uh, what the fatality rates were. And then suddenly it occurred to us, wait, the one thing that you can't really rely on the internet for it is like if no one turns up because no one wants to get sick it's pretty interesting yeah but fortunately there are people working on things like are we over hf radio 
so the network can still continue uh, producing and broadcasting blocks, even if that were to happen. Perfect, perfect, awesome. Sam, as I was like uh, reading through your um, content, like watching your videos, I quickly noticed that you're a mastermind in game theory. So, (laughs) (laughs) so, so drifting, like this question, not only like doesn't uh, particularly uh, um, address to Arweave, but uh, when we talk about networks, like decentralized networks, we always uh, end up in a uh, Pareto distribution whether it be miners, validators, mm-hmm. block producers. So I, I actually wonder your thoughts, like will we be ever uh, to beat that system uh, with, a, with a design uh, where we prevent uh, people to pool their resources and top, right. uh, top um, uh, a few like uh, dominating the network, basically? Um, look, I think that most of the uses... Okay, I'll get back to... That's an interesting question, but just a, a side note on it first. I think most of the use cases for these decentralized networks not really about hyper decentralization, like one person, one node. It's sufficient to be Bitcoin style decentralized, which as you correctly point out, is basically just a Pareto distribution. But as long as the network is enforcing the rules in an elegant way, uh, and there's like 13 to 15 you know, core miners, and everyone can see if they were to start to do something wrong, then actually, basically, they, they typically fulfill the needs. Like no one has to That's worry right. that Bitcoin is going to have more than 21 million Bitcoins, tokens, because there's only you know, 15 people broadly that control the hash rate. Like That's not a concern. It, it, they, the way the protocol is enforced, if 14 of them tried to go and change it to 22 million, then they just have a separate protocol and it's not called Bitcoin, and then we continue our day. Ethereum is largely the same. And I think Arweave is too. Obviously, it would be preferable, I think, if, if we could have one person one node, but that's not not easy to to create, of course, because um, civil identities can never really be that expensive. It's basically the problem. There, there is some interesting stuff happening on the Arweave network in the permaweb on a layer on top with a project called Rverify, which was sort of theorized by Albert from USB, uh, who spoke to a couple of people in our ecosystem, and then they went and built it. And now 5,000 or 6,000 verifications later, it's um yeah they bootstrapped it and it's making like fifteen thousand dollars revenue a month. It's kind of neat for them. But broadly, the principle is this: if I know you, I verify you, and then you verify the people you're friends with, and so on. And then you can make a kind of page rank for humans, and so you get a, a civil resistance score. So on the system, because lots of people know me, I luckily have like a hundred percent civil resistance score. People are very sure that I am not a robot. But if you're new to the network and you don't know so many people, then you might have like a score of 20%, something like this. Um, and over time, it will, it will increase. Yeah. So, so you can use systems like this with social verification to create civil resistance. That obviously, the ending question is, hey, can we apply that to mining? To which I think the answer is like maybe, but not clear yet. There's also stuff like Circles UBI, right? which is broadly taking a similar approach and actually printing money to give to people based on that civil resistance score. So we can see, um, well, I would say, let's watch what happens to circles. And if it works, then that's great. And we should start applying it to mining of actual base layer. Yeah, base layer currencies. Does that answer your question? Yeah, 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 definitely. I mean, uh, it's, yeah, we shouldn't forget the the end goal. The end goal is to, I mean, if you're going to have a censorship resistant network, as long as you're you're decentralized enough to 
have that censorship resistance, then then you're good to go, basically. But yeah, yeah, uh, I, I was good good friends with the Joe Armstrong, uh, who is the founder of Erlang, the language that we actually wrote Arweven, and he had this. Uh, he was sort of known as this cult figure, who had this um, <laughs> this motto that went something like, "Well, it's fast enough." Erlang was supposed to run on like these enormous machines or enormous networks of machines doing telephony switching. Um, and it was never really a good number crunching language, but they kept, kept improving it piece by piece um, until it got to what he called just fast enough. Like, okay, you might be paying a little bit more um, to do whatever, like number crunching, maybe 20% more than you would if it was written in C or something like that. But that doesn't really matter because you get all of this other cool stuff for free. I think like there's an analogy to be made in the decentralized world. It's like decentralized enough to do the job is basically what we're looking for. It shouldn't be a case of, um, again, 100% anything is bad, maybe. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Hey, Sam. Yeah. Sorry. And one quick follow-up there. I mean, just to go back to the kind of the altruistic, kind of the history view, I think that's incredible. I guess the other question there, though, is, how do people like? Do you guys solve access? Like, if I'm in another country and you know my internet's restricted, right? Like, right. How do I get to an R with URL? How do you guys prevent that from being cut off? You know, all the questions yeah, around that. Absolutely. Um, so there's a pretty basic system in the network for sharing bandwidth, which is just like optimistic tit for tat from BitTorrent, which is very little known, but it's actually probably the most successful mechanism designed to be deployed in a protocol ever. Um, at one point, it was it was passing like 35% of the internet's traffic. Oh, actually, that's probably not true. Bitcoin probably has a bigger market cap than than this ever um, accrued fees for. But that's only happened in like the last few months or so. Before that, it was true that, yeah, BitTorrent system um, was using up 35% of the bandwidth on the internet for like 10 years. And it was purely this very basic mechanism that says something like, if you give data to me, I give data to you. And then occasionally we give data to everyone. Uh, so occasionally we give data to people at random. And this, yeah, this creates a Nash equilibrium where everyone is incentivized to uh, give data to everybody else all the time. It's a very elegant game. So we have that baked into the, the base layer of the protocol with some changes and actually with some more liberalism. So we don't really care whether people share bandwidth or whether they actually just like pay each other for access to the data set for mining purposes. Um, that's totally fine by us. Like if they want to, instead of like paying and swapping bandwidth, if they want to swap tokens, like what do we care? It's all the same. I think that like um, swapping bandwidth is easier and nicer because it's easy for people to just plug into and get started. Uh, and it's also how peering relationships on the internet have worked for like dozens of years at this point. Um, yeah, so there's that side of it. And then if you're a user that wants to get access, if you don't want to plug into the base underlying layer of the network, uh, you'll go through a gateway. And there's lots of gateways at this point, which is great. Um, and also this project called Amplify, which is a profit-sharing community built on top of Arweave, um, which incentivizes people to run these gateways. And then they have probe nodes all over the internet, uh, probing each other's gateways to see if they're acting properly. Uh, you can imagine the uh, staking and slashing mechanisms that go into making that work. Um, that's pretty much what you would expect. So there's that from the user's access perspective as well. Makes sense. That's awesome. Um, Ken, I'll let you go next. Yeah. Um, so you mentioned uh, a profit-sharing community. Could you elaborate on right. that? <laughs> what is that? Uh, it's, yeah. Yeah. It's a, uh, okay. it's a big part so, of PermaWeb, right? Yeah. 
Right, for sure. It's become so. I mean, basically, they are decentralized autonomous organizations uh, that govern the running and building of web services. And on top of that, they also share profit from those services. Um, And typically, this comes in the form of tips. So, for example, if you're creating a decentralized medium, you might have a tip that um, goes along with the fee when the person uploads a blog post and the tip sends you know, 0.01R or something to members of the profit sharing community uh, relative to their ownership stake. So if we all own a third, a third of the time I get the tip and a third or two thirds of the time you get the tip. Um, yeah, that's pretty much how it works. But what it means is that now the assets that back these web services are what you might call hard. They have a real underlying value to them. Well, I mean, actually, this is just one of the ways they're better than traditional startups, I think. But, but it's basically this principle that says, okay, so now if you hold this token over time, as people use the application, um, value will accrue to your wallet. And it's just like an APR, basically. Micro dividends with every user of the application, broadly speaking. Um, so this is obviously a big step up on equity in a, in a traditional startup, which might actually never issue any kind of dividends, um, even if it's wildly successful. An example of this would be Facebook. Uh, never issues a dividend or never has issued a dividend, has a stated policy that it won't. Uh, so your value being in Facebook, what does it really do? And all those profits just get recycled into making Facebook bigger, which if it's never going to issue any value outwardly, then it's, it's kind of hard to identify where the value of those tokens in this case, securities, equities, um, actually come from. And similarly, they, they have a more elegant, I think, uh, governance model, which is we don't just say, okay, you own this many or this percentage of the organization, you get that percentage of the voting power. Instead, people that are really staked in for long periods of time get a, long, a larger stake, if, even if they have a smaller quantity of tokens. So you get the quantity of tokens, you multiply it by the amount of time that they are willing to stake those tokens, and so you can generate um, what would we call, what would we call what we would call uh, incentives for good governance using this. Because the idea is, if my tokens are staked for two years and I'm accruing value in those tips all through that uh, length of time, then obviously I have some kind of uh, incentive to make sure that the tips continue to accrue and also ideally increase. And so now I'm trying to do the best for the organization uh, rather than just holding the tokens um, yeah. and being able to vote on stuff. Yeah, I, I love this Web3 three, web stuff. Like uh, you use money as a language to communicate messages. Huh. It's, it's fantastic. Interesting. Uh, yeah, still uh, passes me. So yeah. you, you mentioned about content creation before and I want to uh, dive a bit deeper there because um, that part is actually, I'm having a little uh, confusion. Because uh, data on PermaWeb is, is always goes up, right? So you cannot delete something that you have right. uploaded on uh, on uh, Weave, uh, Weave. So how does content like what happens if if there's a illegal uh, content upload? How does uh, uh, you how do you deal with that? Uh, how does the network deal with that? Yeah, yeah it's actually uh, it's actually better on our Weave than it is on normal blockchains because we've had to deal with the problem of well, okay. The network is going to be so large, it's not possible to store all of the data. Sorry, it's not possible for every node to store all of the data. So that means naturally it must be okay 
for people not to store certain pieces of data. It's kind of built into the, the hard requirements technically to make something like this work. And one of the outputs of this is that the network simply never forces anyone to store any piece of data if they don't want to. So while it does create a small incentive to store every piece of data, um, obviously if the content is illegal locally to where you're storing it and you're putting it online with your IP address, you're saying, hey, everyone come along and download this clear text, unencrypted data from me. Then you're painting a target on your back if that thing is illegal, which is a huge disincentive to do that. So the weighing of the incentives and the disincentives very clearly comes out on the disincentive side, um, and you just won't store data that is illegal. Similarly, you won't store data that is highly against your conscience. Um, and so these things sort of keep it in check. And then there's this uh, system whereby essentially it's a global network. Uh, so data that is illegal in more places, much harder to get access to. And there's some forms of data that I think we can all agree shouldn't be replicated permanently forever. And fortunately, that information is actually illegal basically every single place on the earth. Uh, and subsequently, there's just no incentive to store that. And that's the one time in which the data just won't be available, even if you pay to store it permanently in the network. So if no miners anywhere will store it for you. Yeah, so, so that's how the network deals with content moderation at the protocol level. So I would call this basically voluntarism. The idea is, if you were to boil it down to a sentence, nobody is forced to store anything they don't want to, or they're not allowed to, full stop. And then on top of that, you can obviously have content moderation inside your uh, application. And that that's just like in Ethereum coders law, you decide how that's gonna work. So whether your community is gonna vote on the content moderation, or whether there's gonna be like moderators that, that allow and disallow certain pieces of content where you can like elect them and revoke them. That's a common theme. Or whether you just have like one address and says, this is the super admin and they're allowed to do whatever they want. Yeah, all of that's up for debate. And, and uh, would you say, down to the developer to decide. The, the one further complication is that gateways can also uh, apply their own content moderation policy. This is actually really cool. Because it means that if you are, for example, a uh, devoutly Christian person and you don't want to see a web that's full of swear words, just to caricature an you know, example, then you can actually just go to a gateway that has similar political leanings to you. And you see a web, so the same applications will be served to you without the content that you find offensive. Um, this is really interesting because it allows the users to have, would you say, to have the ultimate say in the content that, that is presented to them. They become the ultimate arbiters of it. That's really cool, we think. It allows people to basically take part in the web they want to see without, without having to enforce that on others. And of course, this frees the developer from the burden of having to do content moderation themselves. Like you see, it's basically ripping apart the main social media networks right now. But actually, it, it's funny, like <laughs> it's like one of those. Um, one of those cases where the wrinkles at the edges of the design at the beginning become the fundamental flaws later. So arguably one megabyte block limit in Bitcoin was just something Satoshi threw in one day. Um, the commit log basically says nothing of interest. It's just like oh, one megabyte block limit now. And that suddenly became, when 2017 came around, the thing that defined the system. But I think with social media networks, it's like, you know, they're building all this amazing stuff uh, arguably very, very good for humanity in a lot of ways, which we we don't think about much nowadays, but I think, you know, 10 years ago, we were noticing this. And it's true uh, still. 
But at the middle, there was this wrinkle, which is like, okay, but how do we decide what people should or should not be able to say? So freeing developers of that responsibility and burden actually lets them get on with the stuff that they're great at, building these amazing products, while pushing that responsibility back to the users, uh, back to communities, and then back to the hosts of the nodes in this kind of hierarchical structure, if you see that. That's a really good take. I mean, we've seen a lot of developers do wild things when, um, and I'm not telling everyone to do anything illegal, but we've seen them really push the bounds when they can, you know, design in whatever space they want, um, which is super interesting. And just to bring it back to kind of the space right now, um, how does Arweave handle NFTs? Um, because there's obviously a lot of discussion going on on, right. you know, who owns the IP, who owns the metadata, like right. how does Arweave work with NFTs today? I mean, NFTs and Arweave are such an obvious fit, uh, which is, it's cool to see that like the industry has also started to realize this uh, kind of en masse as well. Because if you buy an NFT, there's absolutely no reason you want it to be anything less than permanent, particularly if permanence of that NFT costs, you know, a fraction, tiny fraction, maybe a tenth or a hundredth of the ETH gas fees required to buy the NFT. So the people are now just starting to embed transaction IDs from Arweave that contain the data, the asset, into the Ethereum blockchain. That's one way of doing it. But people are also going a step further now and creating what we're calling atomic NFTs, which are basically, it's a little bit strange to describe because it's kind of what people think NFTs are anyway, but aren't really, but just hear me out. The idea of an atomic NFT is it's an NFT where the contract, the metadata, and the data are all found in the same place permanently and behind a single address. Whereas what's normally happening at the moment in Ethereum, for example, is you have an NFT contract address, which contains a link to the metadata, which scarily is sometimes stored on centralized servers that can be changed Mm -hmm. or forgotten to be paid for by the author at any point later. And then that metadata points to somewhere else where the data is stored. So when people are using Arweave, normally they're linking to data or metadata on Arweave, and then the metadata links to another transaction that contains the image, which is you know good step up, I would say. But the, the ultimate, well, that introduces a problem, which is like, okay, that's cool. But what if we have multiple blockchains or just multiple contracts that point to the same piece of data? But with an atomic NFT, you simply cannot do that because the the identifier you have in itself contains the contract which says who owns it. And so everything can be labeled as one and it's never going to be lost, which I think is like, yeah, it's kind of the ultimate design for something like this. Um, and people are yeah, moving I, to that I, now. It's pretty I'd pay open to see. see more money if I could see like that the metadata right. is on Arweave or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah, I think uh, OpenSea are integrating Arweave right now, uh, but just for storage of data, I think it'll be a while before people start to do atomic NFTs on Arweave en masse, although I do see the beginnings of it starting to take shape. For sure. We're, we're running low on time, but Ken, throw in uh, one more and I'll throw in one more as well. Okay. Yeah, sure. Um, so recently, I also uh, read about Arweave uh, becoming the backbone for for different blockchain uh, projects, uh, Swan right. is one of them, uh, uh, and and there are many others too. So, so can you explain us how, how you help uh, those projects and what's the uh, what's the basically use case there? Uh, right. The, yeah. 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 So, um, blockchains typically have this problem, which is like they're an ever-growing ledger, and there's no incentives to store the old data. Okay, they're they're adding it as lower rate than Arweave, but eventually, if they're one of these scalable blockchains. You know, 
they're starting to add like hundreds of terabytes per month. Uh, it's a problem. There are hundreds of gigabytes at least. And they you know, span sometimes multiple terabytes at this point. So Arweave obviously has those incentives to make permanent storage actually possible. So if you store the data inside Arweave, you can be confident you're not going to lose an old copy of the uh, blockchain. And you can also be sure that you can sync it down to your nodes much faster because you can take part in what is essentially akin to a BitTorrent form for the blockchain data itself. Yeah, this started with Solana about, no, was it Scale first? Yeah, Scale. Uh, we spoke to them about this and they were super interested. And so we put together a grant and then they integrated it. And then Solana not long after, and then suddenly it was Polkadot. And after Polkadot, then Cosmos and also Avalanche and God, who else now? Basically, all of the large blockchains have now signed up to do this. And at the time of the Polkadot grant, which was co-funded between us and, and Polkadot, a team was formed in the Arweave ecosystem, and they realized that you know, the basic principle of like take the data from the other blockchain, put it on Arweave, is good. But what's much better is if you can also validate that that data is correct. And so they started building like a whole profit-sharing community around this uh, called Kaif, which is now ready for testnet and has these integrations with all these other blockchains. They're actually all co-funding it, it's really cool. They all took like uh, convertible notes on Kai's first uh, funding round. Yeah, so that's really elegant to see. Like I think, let's see. Yeah, I think basically all of the major blockchains in the, in the crypto space are now doing this apart from Ethereum and Bitcoin themselves. So it's, it's cool stuff. And, and for example, you can use Kai now to build fully decentralized Perma web based block explorers for all of these networks that are agnostic. And they have a demo of this working. It's so amazing to see. It's like real decentralized access to all of the data in the crypto ecosystem. Just put in like a TX ID anywhere and boom, there you go. Now you have all the information about your TX, no matter what blockchain it's stored on. And of course, all of the information is unified in format. So you can access it in your applications without having to write different drivers for different chains. So it becomes like the aggregator service, which is pretty cool. And now the graph uh, starting to use this for fast syncing of old data. And I think they're also going to potentially use it just to you know, index that and then index all of the chains at once without having to basically build you know, different, um, yeah, different implementations and plugins to their network for every chain, just do one. So that's a, that's another cool use case of Arweave. That's awesome. And Sam, just to switch gears, just two final questions for, for my end. One quicker one. When do you think it'll be easy or, or does it exist now to just, you know, store the Arweave on my computer or phone, right? Like, you know, is it stupid to think we'll get like a, you know, a Google, you know, quick link to allocate some, some of my space? And sorry for the stupid question here. It just seems like such an easy way to kind of add supply to your network. Right. The big question is, is when will you be able to do that and then make a reasonable profit? And I think the answer is when people start to create decentralized pooling software on top of Arweave so that you can um, you can submit partial proofs of work in the same way that you would with a normal centralized pool, but have, yeah, the decentralized network basically work out who rewards should go to. And then anyone from that network that mines a block, they also send a transaction distributing the profits from that block to members of the mining pool. I think that's the solution to this problem. I'm actually talking to someone in 30 minutes from the ecosystem that is uh, yeah, looking to take on building a decentralized mining pool like this. So it's pretty cool to see as well. Sam, if they're raising money, send them our way. We'd love to put a link <laughs> <to> that. <laughs> Amazing, yeah. Uh, and uh, just 
one last question. So, you know, you started this a couple of years ago and, you know, if you have to, you know, your day to day is probably insane because you're just so focused on building and, and driving RWE forward. But if you had to look at the entire life of Arweave, I mean, what's the, you know, most unforeseen positive and I guess negative event that you've overcome um, on both sides that you didn't see coming? Huh. Not an easy question. To some extent, it's all felt fairly predictable. <laughs> like it's taken a long time, but when I started this, I got this weird feeling that like this thing people were going to like. <laughs> like it was, it, it, it's one of those things that like, if you looked at the world at that time, you know, just after the election of Donald Trump, this wasn't really a reaction to that, but like in that realm where where um, where we all were mentally, I think a lot of people were interested in something like this existing. And then as soon as we started speaking to people, they, sure enough, they, they kind of started coalescing around it. And um, it's been a bumpy ride for sure. But like, I know, largely... Nothing, nothing sticks out as like, wow, I did not expect that. That was a complete, I mean, actually, no. Um, <laughs> lots of interesting stories in like the short term where very, very surprising things happened both up and down, um, like random coincidences and all sorts of stuff. But in the, in the stuff that matters, like over the long term, it's all been kind of what we expected. Well, I mean, that speaks to you guys and you know yourself personally spending a lot of time to plan this out the right way instead of winging it, right? Um, so kudos <laughs> to you. <laughs> Thanks. Well, yeah, I'm sure I can take credit for that. But <laughs> anyway, <laughs> uh, I appreciate that. Ken, any last questions on your end? Or are you good? Well, I'm I'm happy to meet you. Uh, no, no further questions. Um, <laughs> you, I mean, this is a very uh, holy uh, mission uh, that uh, RV is after, and it's it's such a cool project. So. Yeah, congratulations. Thanks so much. It was a really fun fun uh, chat. Great to have the opportunity to meet you guys as well. Yeah, Sam, really appreciate your time. And, and shout out to Ken. We'll link um, his report on Arweave in the show notes. Did a phenomenal job there. Um, and Sam, thanks so much for coming on. Really appreciate your time and uh, hope you, could, you can come on again soon. <laughs> thanks, everyone. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening to the podcast. If you enjoyed it, please support the show by hitting subscribe on iTunes, writing a review, or sharing this episode on Twitter and LinkedIn. And stay tuned for our next episode out soon.